0: Welcome to the GUT podcast on the new BSG IBD guidelines published in GUT. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm an associate editor of GUT and a consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, and I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Chris Lam, who is a clinical intermediate fellow at Newcastle University, an honorary consultant in gastroenterology at the Newcastle upon Tyne Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Dr. Lam is the first author on the IBD guidelines. Dr. Lam, thank you very much for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent IBD guidelines. Firstly, could you tell me how the guidelines were produced so the listeners can understand the process and the methodology behind it?
1: This was a huge team effort from start to finish. I was lucky to work closely with the senior author, Barney Hawthorne, a fantastic group of co-authors and a Delphi consensus group from across the country where we were able to receive input and feedback from a large number of patients, their family, and friends. The guidelines were produced according to an internationally recognised process called grade methodology. To put this simply, this involves several steps. Firstly, we formed a guideline development group, which included experts representing all major stakeholders in UK IBD care. We had physicians from the British Society of Gastroenterology, we had surgeons from the Association of Coloproctology of Great Britain and Ireland, we had nursing representatives from the Royal College of Nursing paediatricians from the British Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, dietitians from the British Dietetic Association, radiologists from the British Society of Gastrointestinal and Abdominal Radiology, and GP representation from the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. Importantly, the guideline development process involved patients from the outset and throughout, including all planning stages, drafting of the manuscript, and now dissemination of the information contained within the guideline through our collaboration with Crohn's and Colitis UK. We carefully listened to considerations uh, and interactions clinicians and patients have during both outpatient and inpatient consultations. And we derived around 400 multifaceted scenarios and questions that we felt people approached in everyday clinical practice. We then refined these questions to what's called a PICO format, which involved uh, understanding the population that our question, Um, uh, related to interventions, comparators and outcomes that were important to that question, and that informed a systematic review of the worldwide literature. From this, we returned 88,000 publications, which we then refined electronically and by expert assessment of the content to derive over 200 recommendations for IBD management, And through a special process called a Delphi Consensus Process, we were able to refine 168 recommendations. And the final paper cites 1,289 papers.
0: Thank you. That was a very comprehensive overview. So if I'm right, this guideline is an update on the guidelines last published in 2011. Could you tell me about the particular highlights of this guideline? Because lots have changed in IBD management over that time.
1: Absolutely, as you say, it's eight years since
0: the last guideline was published.
1: And what we wanted to do with this guideline was really follow the patient story, follow the patient experience throughout the course of IBD. We've broken the paper up into four broad categories, That was being ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, aspects of care which are common to both conditions, and also importantly, an area regarding service delivery which aligns very closely with the IBD standards. We derived 168 consensus recommendations 135 of these are graded, which means that we have some assessment of the quality of evidence that's behind these. And we also have 33, what are called good practice recommendations, where perhaps we're dealing with multiple interventions, perhaps a poor evidence base, but strong expert opinion. We have a company up to date evidence base for each of our recommendations. And importantly, what we've tried to do is make a pragmatic and useful document that can be used day to day in IBD practice to promote safe good quality MDT working to promote the best possible care for our patients. There are 12 useful tables within the document, which include clinical and endoscopic scoring systems. There are 13 boxes with top tips about how to manage IBD, and seven useful figures and flow charts, which are throughout the document to manage everyday scenarios. We talk about composition and role of the MDT. We talk about positioning of new therapies that have arrived since 2011. We talk about the use of biosimilars in IBD. We talk about important symptoms to patients including assessment and management of pain and fatigue. We talk about psychological interventions and IBD management, shared care between primary and secondary care, IBD transition, nutrition, dietary therapy, and we also touch on important areas for patients such as complementary and alternative therapies.
0: Are there areas of this guideline that were identified as either being controversial or lacking stronger evidence or areas that we clearly identified it as needing f- uh, further research in the future.
1: Absolutely, so as I mentioned earlier on, we started with 400 or more than 400 clinical scenarios which informed our search strategy and the ultimate statements which we derived. In total, we then used those 168 patients to refer back to the original scenarios that we had to see whether there were aspects of care where there wasn't sufficient data and we needed further uh, research in the future. Importantly, we were able to identify 20 research priority themes from this. And working closely with Crohn's and Colitis UK, we converted these into language appropriate for a general audience. And we carried out surveys with Crohn's and Colitis UK to understand the importance of each of these areas of research priority for future research in the UK. With Crohn's and Colitis UK, we had almost 2,500 survey responses. And we identified areas of priority, including methods of cancer prevention and optimal surveillance in IBD, strategies to introduce precision medicine into the clinic, for example, the right treatment for the right patient at the right time, the etiology and management of pain and fatigue, assessment and management of fibrosis and Crohn's disease, modulation of the microbiome in IBD, including fecal microbial transplantation, and also aspects of surgical technique, to name just a few. We hope that these areas of research priority can be used to inform the government research councils and medical research funding bodies and industry as to areas of research importance for future IBD management.
0: Now, the IBD standards uh, in the UK have been recently published in Frontline Gastroenterology, which is got sister journal, How do these guidelines and the standards tie in together?
1: So both documents fundamentally aim to promote the highest possible standards of care for people living with IBD. They're both designed to be patient-centered and complementary to one another. The guidelines describe what treatments patients should receive and the evidence base supporting this. And the IBD standards outline how this can and should be delivered, the services we should provide in the NHS and key performance indicators for these. There are a number of overlapping authors and people who work between the two processes to aid complementary development. Crohn's and Colitis UK played an essential role in the development of the IBD guidelines, and both Barney Hawthorne and I helped facilitate the alignment of the Delphi methodology between both the guidelines and the standards
0: processes. It's clearly a huge, huge undertaking producing these guidelines. Dare I ask two questions? Firstly, when is the next guideline planned to be, and secondly, Clearly, the IBD landscape is changing rapidly in IBD, um, especially in regard to new therapies in the pipeline. Are you concerned about how rapidly things are changing and now soon this guideline may, dare I say it, become out of date? For me, publication of the guideline
1: is the starting point to promote high quality patient care in IBD and to support quality improvement and innovation in delivery of this care in the UK. We have plans now to disseminate the information to healthcare professionals and importantly, patients to support this. Moving forward, we hope the guideline and the review of the guideline can be a near continual process in order that updates can be issued periodically. It's difficult to know exactly how long that will take. We have to be um, aware of the fact that the development of this iteration of the guidelines took three and a half years from start to finish. I hope that in five years' time, we may see a new guideline. But what I think is most achievable is if we continue to review the guideline, perhaps on an annual or every two-year basis to see what's changed. Perhaps we can provide updates to the community so that people know where aspects of care are changing, where things are evolving, and to incorporate any new and exciting treatments, medical or non-medical, that may be coming along.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lamb, for, for doing this podcast today. And many congratulations on your fantastic guidelines being published in Gut. a huge achievement that uh, I think many people listening to this will know that you should be very proud of. Um, I extend very warm congratulations from our editor-in-chief, uh, Imad El-Omar, and I know that the BSG, the British Society of Gastroenterology, delighted, and we are also very proud at GUT to have your guidelines published. Thank you.